Well, we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. That's the end of Matthew 13, the last paragraph there. If you want to turn there in your Bible, or the text is printed in the bulletin. Uh, so far in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we've been in it for a little over a year now. Um, we're maybe, maybe about halfway through. Uh, But uh, we've heard some amazing things about Jesus. We've heard about his miraculous birth. Uh, We've heard about his victory over the spiritual forces of darkness. We've heard his compassionate and uh, wondrous healings, many of them. Uh, We've heard his confounding mercy and grace toward sinners. And we've heard about the, the unsurpassed wisdom, the divine light of his teachings. So there's more than enough so far in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Clear, obvious, undeniable testimony about Jesus to admit that here is someone special. Here is someone unique among all people who ever lived. And yet, uh, people reject him. People have always rejected him. People know these amazing things about Jesus and still reject him. Even the people who knew him his whole life, those who should have been most receptive, even they rejected Jesus personally, uh, even violently. And there's something wrong with that. And uh, it might seem like I'm just stating what is so obvious, uh, but it needs to be brought into focus or else we'll never face the reality of it. There's something deeply wrong with our personal unbelieving rejection of Jesus. It is not logical. It doesn't make any sense. There's no good reason to do it. Nevertheless, it's universal. It's 100% typical of sinful humanity in this world. The unbelieving rejection of Jesus. Uh, You know, it might surprise us uh, if you've been in the church for a while, uh, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus meets with unbelieving rejection all the time. It shouldn't surprise us. It didn't surprise God. It didn't surprise Jesus. What should surprise us really is when anybody does believe, when uh, they hear the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done and keep coming back for more. (laughs) That should surprise us. Uh, That's the kind of stuff we're going to talk about this morning, unbelieving rejection of Jesus. Um, So let me pray, then we'll read this scripture. Father, may your word find receptive hearts here through the work of your spirit among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Okay, so I think we should slow down a little bit and consider carefully what this must have been like, this scene here when Jesus visits his hometown. He's been all over the region of Galilee up to this point, uh, teaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, performing signs and wonders, uh, doing so many good, helpful things, blessing so many people. 
Uh, yes, he's already proving to be a controversial figure. We've seen opposition arise already. <clears throat> but there were a lot of people saying a lot of remarkable things about Jesus. And now he's coming back to his hometown, Nazareth. Uh, he's going to see people that he knows. He's going to see family and friends, people who watched him grow up for, for 30 years in this village, right? It's a village. It's probably only a few hundred people uh, at the time. So probably everybody there would have known him to some degree. As the adopted son of a carpenter, you know, he had been a carpenter himself until he left. And now he's returning a famous rabbi, a traveling teacher. Unlike other rabbis, uh, he had not completed formal rabbinic training, uh, but still, he was held in high esteem by most people in the surrounding countryside, and so he was invited to teach at the synagogue, at their synagogue there in Nazareth, the, the local Jewish worship center, where you go in your own community for worship and scriptures and fellowship uh, instead of always going to the temple in Jerusalem. So <clears throat> uh, he's teaching in the synagogue. It's, it's homecoming weekend. His arrival, his teaching in the synagogue probably would have been considered most exciting, uh, probably one of the most exciting things that that little village had seen. And normally we'd expect uh, such a village in such a situation to be bursting with pride in their hometown hero uh, come home that, that, that weekend, right? So Luke records the event in more detail than Matthew does. He says in chapter 4 that Jesus stood up in a synagogue and he took and read from the scroll of Isaiah and he read from chapter 61, he said that the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And then he taught them <clears throat> with his astonishing authority, the, the authority that everybody found noteworthy and remarkable. This is astonishing authority that he teaches with. <clears throat> he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the guest preacher radically and uncomfortably <laughs> departs from the regular routine of preaching that they were used to. Uh, usually preachers talk about God. And Jesus talks about himself. And he was saying that as the people of his hometown heard his words about himself from the scriptures, that it was the poor hearing good news. That in that moment, it was captives hearing of their liberty. It was the blind recovering their sight. It was the oppressed being set free. It was the bankrupt being forgiven all their debts. In that moment, <clears throat> he is the long-awaited Messiah, anointed by God's own Spirit, uniquely, to save his people who needed saving from their spiritual blindness and oppression and captivity and poverty. And Luke says something very similar in uh, his Gospel, chapter 4, to what we have here in Matthew, in our more succinct account of it. Uh, that at first they all spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words. But their attitude quickly, so quickly it was inexplicable, it changed. Their attitude changed in the middle of their sentence and they began to ask, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? <clears throat> and um, 
they ended up being filled with wrath because of what Jesus had said. And they rose up and drove him out of town to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. People from his hometown. Jesus walked away from that situation. He walked away from that town. It was the end of his welcome there. I mean, it seemed like things were going so well at first, but it all so quickly turned bad, even violent. And we wonder how that's possible. How can Matthew, in our passage, record that the people in the synagogue were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And then in the very same breath, without any apparent reason or transition, that they took offense at him. Literally, they're scandalized by him. That doesn't make any sense. They knew the wisdom and power of Jesus. And they knew that there was nothing wrong with him. I mean, you just think, just think for a while. Here's a village full of people who had known Jesus for years, decades. And they start asking questions like, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Uh, Isn't he Mary's boy, right? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? And we might think when we're hearing a passage like this, we might think of the adage. uh, It's pretty common to think of this adage. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. But it's not that. Not exactly. Because that adage means that the more you know someone, the less you like them. The more you come to know somebody, the less like it. it uh, I guess it's actually been a matter of research. People think that the more you know someone, the more you'll like them. But actually, usually, as you spend time getting to know someone, uh, the mystique wears off and you become aware of their warts and their problems and their faults. And the less you like them, the less you would respect them. Uh, maybe you even come to despise them. Familiarity breeds contempt. So, but these people from his hometown, they'd seen him grow up. They had known him and interacted with him, uh, perhaps even on a daily basis for decades. They didn't cite any warts or problems. They could not dismiss him because, you know, when you get to know him, you find out he's actually a drunkard or he's abusive, he's rude, or uh, you know, deceitful. He's a hypocrite if you get to know him. They couldn't say, well, once you get to know him, you'll find he's not that great of a person. We know him really well. They couldn't say anything bad about him. They were forced to admit good things about him, about his wisdom and his mighty works. The way he spoke, the things he did, it was clear. He has come from God. But for some reason, uh, they couldn't acknowledge that. They would not. So they could only insist, this has got to be just an ordinary man, just like us. We know his origins, right? He couldn't possibly have come from God or anything. And then they get angry enough at this glorious person that they know. Angry enough to kill him. And that doesn't make any sense. It's entirely normal. But uh, this is not the result of good, rational, objective thinking. This is the personal rejection of unbelief, which is biased. It's predisposed. It's prejudiced against God. So unbelief is what we see here. Unbelief precedes thinking. 
Unbelief predetermines how you think about Jesus. Look, here's God in the flesh, unmistakably and wonderfully good. If you ever wanted, if you actually wanted proof of God's goodness, proof of God's love, here he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people who knew him, who knew his goodness, were nevertheless searching for reasons to justify their personal rejection of him. So John Calvin says in this, uh, his commentary on this passage, he says, It is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. We don't want to follow the path to which God invites us in Jesus. And so we search for reasons that we think justify our being offended. That's the nature, that's the true nature of unbelief, which is the root of all sin and every particular sin. Unbelief is not, you know, just about not having enough data, not having enough hard evidence to make an informed decision about Jesus, to make an informed judgment about Jesus. Unbelief is a heart that's set against him, regardless of data. Unbelief is a heart that is set against Jesus, regardless of the data that's staring you in the face. It it isn't just some neutral lack of faith. It's opposing Jesus. It's like anti-faith. An unbelieving heart wants to reject Jesus, and so it actually compels the mind to come up with reasons why that's okay. A person who rejects Jesus is not ultimately doing so because of good, clear thinking, but because of a heart of unbelief, because of prejudiced distrust. And this unbelief is definitive of all humanity apart from God's gracious work. That is why the New Testament frequently talks about people in just two categories, believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers. We are creatures of faith before we are creatures of reason. Our rational thinking is ultimately grounded in our beliefs. So there's nothing more fundamental to our identity as sinners than unbelief. We hear God's word. This is the way people are. We hear God's word and we say, no, I don't believe that. I don't like it. I don't want it. That is the unbeliever's first instinctive response by definition. God's word came in the flesh. No one ever said truer things than Jesus. No one ever did more wonderful things. No one ever had a purer heart or a greater love than Jesus. And his own people said, no, nope. Reasoning with them didn't work. It's just like what Cheryl read from our Old Testament reading, Psalm 78, when God provided miraculously over and over again in ways that cannot be mistaken for anything other than direct miracles of God. He provides for the needs of his people in the desert. Gives them bread from heaven, and then it just rains meat on them. (laughs) Because they're hungry and complaining for meat. So he brings in birds on the wind. Despite being first-hand recipients of all his wonders for 40 years in the wilderness, they still didn't believe him. They still didn't trust him. That's what it said. But the people who knew Jesus from Nazareth, they didn't just say no to Jesus in spite of who he is and what he's doing. 
Really, they said no to Jesus because of who he is and what he's doing. Because of his glorious, divine goodness. It was when they came to understand more and more about his goodness that they started to plant their feet and raise their fists. That's what unbelief really is. It's opposition to the glorious goodness of God. Unbelief is not good. Unbelief is not even neutral. If it's in conflict with God's obvious goodness, then what is it? I mean, even if unbelief is camouflaged as some sort of you know, benign uncertainty, as it often is in our culture, it is not innocent. It's not benign. It is willful opposition to God's goodness. This passage shows just how bad a state humanity is in, just how far away from God we are, even from simply believing what he says to us in his goodness, what he says to us in his love. If his own people didn't believe, who would? If they of all people, these people from Jesus' hometown who knew him, rejected him so personally and violently, who on earth is going to receive him and why would they do it? The Bible is clear that we should not be surprised when Jesus encounters unbelief like he does here. We should not be surprised at the unbelief of others. We should certainly not condemn the unbelief of others. We should recognize it because we've seen it in ourselves. Like it or not, believers can relate to unbelievers in this. After all, the same root of unbelief is still at work in us every time we sin. Every time I yell at my kids, every time I try to manipulate others, every time I nurse a grudge, every time I break any of God's commandments, I'm rejecting Jesus personally in my unbelief. I've sinned because I've wanted to, because that's what's in my heart. I've willfully opposed Jesus, opposed his glorious goodness, opposed his very nature as the God who became human to be able to relate to us. I've opposed his wondrous works and his wisdom and his ways and his love. There's no good reason for my opposition to Jesus. I know that. There is never any good reason for our opposition to Jesus, for our personal rejection of Jesus in our sins. There's no excuse for unbelief. The remarkable thing is that Jesus is completely aware of our unbelief, completely aware of this reception that he's getting. Everywhere he goes, really, verse 57, he says, When they took offense at him, Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I mean, he knows the relational dynamics. He knows the kind of reception that he is to expect. He knows the record of God's people rejecting their prophets, rejecting the ones that God sends to them, rejecting God's word. He knows all that. Jesus understands our unbelief. He allows it to be a reality in our relationships with him. He responds to it. And he even incorporates it into his work. Many centuries before the time of Jesus, Isaiah foretold the Messiah's reception or lack thereof. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised, rejected by men. So God said that his Messiah would be rejected because of the unbelief of his people. And yet, the Father sent the Son 
into the world to save the world. Jesus came into the world to experience this unbelieving rejection. To suffer it personally and relationally. It had a real effect on his relationships, as is seen in our passage. It says that he didn't do mighty, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It had a real effect on relationships with people that he cared about. People from his hometown. He did not do mighty, mighty works there because of their unbelief. <clears throat> so that's not like the story... You know, where the old gods are fading out of existence because nobody believes in them anymore, right? Or, um, or there's stories where children have to go around and get their friends drum up faith in Santa Claus so that he can get the sparkly power to deliver all the Christmas presents on time. You know, we've heard those stories uh, where we think somehow faith is some kind of fuel for the divine to work. It's not that. Jesus is not hindered by our unbelief. Uh, it's not a matter of power or possibility. It's a matter of relationship. By showing us the relational consequences of our unbelief, he's showing us the very nature of unbelief. In our unbelief, we're saying we want to have nothing to do with God, with our glorious creator, with the generous provider. We want to have the lover of our souls? No. We want to have nothing to do with him. In our unbelief, we're saying we prefer a reality without him. We're devoted to a reality without him. We wouldn't mind if he just disappeared, just didn't exist. We wouldn't mind that relationship ending, even if we have to end him to bring it about. That's what kind of people we are. And in the end, we would walk away from God, given the choice, left to ourselves, We'd walk away from God and everybody else. Unbelievers are committed to end all their relationships because they oppose the God of love. They close off their hearts to the God of love. And at some level, Jesus gives unbelievers what they want. He leaves them alone. He walks away. He lets people reject him and he lets that relationship die. If you're an unbeliever, that shouldn't bother you at all. You shouldn't care. Isn't that what you wanted? But it should bother you. It should be the most disturbing thought that God would let your relationship with him die because of your unbelief. But ultimately, even in the death of that relationship, it's not unbelief that wins the day. It's the love of Christ. Jesus lets our relationship die in order to renew our relationship. Jesus used our sinful, unbelieving rejection of him to atone for our sinful, unbelieving rejection of him. To repair the relationship that we had broken. It's the spiritual equivalent of a judo throw, right? Where you use the power and the momentum of your enemy's attack uh, against him to defeat him. Jesus allowed his enemies to arrest him and bind him and condemn him falsely to death. And that's the ultimate personal rejection. That's the ultimate ending of that relationship. Crucifixion. He let sinners kill the relationship by killing him. 
In his love, Christ used our own hostility toward him to forgive and overcome our hostility. Our unbelief resulted in his crucifixion, which is his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Unbelief being at the core of that. Our unbelief couldn't keep him dead. You know, the love of God overcame the effects of our unbelief. We wanted that relationship to end in our unbelief. Our unbelief didn't win. We couldn't keep him dead. The Father raised his son from the dead, and now the Spirit replaces our dead hearts with new hearts that are alive to God. Now, as we look to the cross, as we look to that place where our unbelief met the love of Christ, we know which one of those triumphed. Our unbelief becomes belief as we look to the cross. We might still have you know, disbelief. How can it be? How could this be? But now there's also faith. Where before there was only willful opposition. Now there is acceptance and embrace. Where before there was only rejection. Yes, Jesus still encounters unbelief everywhere in the world. In unbelievers and believers alike. What do we do with that? Well, don't be surprised or deeply disturbed or dismayed. Uh, Lament. Lament unbelief. Wherever you see it. Unbelief is bad and it should make us sad. Lament the unbelief of your friends, your neighbors, your children, your family who haven't yet trusted and rejoiced in Christ. Lament and pray. Pray for the work of the Spirit in their lives that he would awaken their hearts to true faith as they hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Pray for Jesus to do that judo flip in their lives, that he would even use their own unbelief and the relational consequences of their unbelief to bring them to him. Pray for the Spirit's work in your own life. Lament your own unbelief, that you're still prone to prejudiced distrust of this glorious God and his goodness. Confess that. Lament it and deliberately forsake it every day. Examine your own unbelief. Let God show you how crazy it is. Learn to recognize how your own unbelief can lead you to the cross, points to the cross, where you see the complete trustworthiness of his love for you in Christ. Repent of your unbelief, which of course means believe. Profess faith in Jesus Christ personally. He commands it. He told Thomas in John 20, after his resurrection, very simply, very straightforward, do not disbelieve, but believe. So profess faith in Christ. Do it personally. Do it corporately. With us together in the church, we do it every Sunday. You don't profess an empty, blind faith in just whatever, you know, insisting on something to be real, to help you through life. You profess faith in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. So learn him and know him and remember him, his goodness and his works and his wisdom and his ways and say yes to him and praise him. 
and tell others about him. The Spirit helps us to fight against our own unbelief in these ways. Thank God for this miraculous work in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you who keep showing up. They know Jesus and yet keep showing up. Like I said, we shouldn't be surprised at the presence of unbelief. We should be surprised, delightedly surprised, at the presence of belief in Christ. God has not left us to our prejudice against him, to our willful opposition, our personal rejection of him, our unbelief. God has entered our lives in ways that have changed us at fundamental levels, levels that cannot possibly change ourselves. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has brought all things out of nothing. He's brought life out of death. He's brought faith out of unbelief. Behold the mighty works that come from God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it may be impossible for us to fully grasp your works, no matter how close attention we pay for how long. Especially the, the work that you do when you take away the heart of unbelief from us. Or how it is that you give us new hearts of faith that are no longer opposed to your son. Even our hostile unbelief didn't stop your work. We could never stop your love coming to us in Christ. And for that, we are thankful. Please do your unstoppable work in us and among us and in our family and our friends and neighbors who don't yet believe. That necessarily means doing something that some part of us doesn't want you to do. But we entrust ourselves to your good care. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.